Will Australia opt us out of digital dystopia? And time to take our financial system back. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 9th of November 2023. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about the Optus outage yesterday. Everyone would no doubt have heard about with, you know, horrific impacts across the country and a victory as well, an important victory that we've had in one of our campaigns. And then we'll come back to talking about one of our favourite topics, and that's the financial system. We'll um, discuss the implications of the latest Reserve Bank rate rise, but also how they really should be tackling things like inflation, how they can expand their toolkit. So stay tuned for that. Uh, now, to help circulate the show, make sure that you yourself have subscribed, hit the notification bells, and you can also make a comment below, hit the like button. All those things help to get the word around uh, improve the circulation of the um, the algorithms and so forth. Uh, and you can also donate below. There's a donate button. Another way that you can help our campaigns is by subscribing to the Australian Alert Service. And just to give a plug for what we have, which of course will cover some of the content in the show, but we can't do it justice. Uh, we've discussed the Reserve Bank rate rise and the victory that we're about to talk about. Uh, for Sterling First victims, really important um, result of numerous of our banking campaigns over the recent period. Um, Albanese's, Prime Minister Albanese's trip to China, very important, uh, a stepping stone to begin to bridge the gulf of our relations with our largest trading partner, uh, Richard Barden has covered, uh, with a number of adjunct items there. Uh, you can also get more of the background on our banking fights. We've republished an article on the lessons from New Zealand and Japan establishing a postal bank. Uh, really important information as a backdrop for what is coming up in uh, the latest salvo of our campaign on the 1st of December when um, we, the Citizens Party, will have a chance to address the hearing of the um, inquiry, parliamentary inquiry into bank closures. Uh, there's an article I've written which we'll talk about in some detail uh, about the rate rise and how this was actually demanded by the International Monetary Fund in their latest assessment of Australia and uh, also other things such as cutting back on infrastructure spending. And you'll see also a number of articles in the rest of the alert uh, on the war currently ongoing in the Middle East and the the bulk of the world under the BRICS expanding BRICS plus umbrella that is pushing for peace um, and features on how um, that is being proposed uh, in terms of the kind of thinking that animated the Oslo Accords. We've got a back page feature with some words from um, the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and his intent to bring together people that are no different um, to live together in harmony because he said, we like you are people, people who just want to build a home, plant a tree, mm. live, you know, side by side. Um, 
really yeah, important yeah, reflection. Yeah, the gives, it gives a really strong contrast, at least, about what's taking place in the world today. On the one hand, you've got the IMF conditionalities, which is the Western uh, nation's uh, economic model of economic rationalism and so forth, which is also the war model, mm. as opposed to what China's doing with Xi Jinping, the Belt and Road Initiative, and the BRICS grouping of countries, which is uh, you know, very much nearly totally um, uh, committed to the idea mm. of a peaceful, developing world. Mm. That's what this alert service Yeah, that's reflected through. in the Almanac, which is a yes. fascinating interview with Jeffrey Sachs. And there's also an article in there on... Um, the U.S. side, uh, you know, where the Israel lobby has come from, why that's such a powerful influence you there. You won't get this information anywhere else. No. So it's not, not in a balanced and a you know, straightforward way. So people, if they, were, you know, if they really want to get inside information from numerous sources, mm. the alert service is where you get it. Mm. Yeah, so now on to our first topic. Will Australia opt us out of digital dystopia? <laughs> When I got up in the morning yesterday, I went to get on our regular video conference call and everything was dead. Mm. I thought, oh, the, the landline's gone down. So I rebooted the modem three times. No, nothing. Then I said, oh, I'll get on my phone. No connection. Mm. I'm thinking, what on earth is going mm. on? It's a bit of and a I shock, had, isn't I it? hadn't heard the news that Ops had gone down at 4 o'clock in the morning. My wife did, but not. I didn't hear it. So I was completely in the dark. Mm. This has never happened before. But the breadth of this shutdown yeah. was enormous. Yeah, all the things that you take for granted, just being able to make a phone call to a family member to check on someone or something. I mean, all of those things and much more serious things were thrown out the window. So uh, 10 million or more customers were disrupted in one way or another. Melbourne's train networks were shut down. Of course, they use Optus for their communications People couldn't get an Uber. They were also uh, dependent on Optus. Landlines, some landlines and mobiles could not even call emergency services, even though that's meant to be provided for by any carrier. They have to be able to switch over to an alternative carrier so people can at least call triple zero. Apparently that wasn't working. Um, three of the four big banks were disrupted and ING, where they couldn't take calls or make calls in the call centres. Uh, they couldn't send out verification texts for transactions, so that you can imagine the mammoth disruption that that caused for, from the smallest to the largest transaction that was scheduled to go through. Um, of course, disruption of business payment systems, payment terminals and so forth that depended on the internet connection or phone connection. Um, and as, as I said earlier, disruption of lives, and there were a lot of um, horror stories that came out through the media yesterday of hospitals not being able to contact loved ones of their family members that were that took a turn for the worse and died in hospital, things like that. Elderly relatives who couldn't be contacted by families who were worried about them, interstate, etc. Um, experts have said uh, in the wake of this that we need to have a backup network, some kind of contingency for disaster and emergency planning. There needs to be redundancy within the system the ability to, for instance, reroute services through other networks of an entire carrier, some kind of switchover capacity. But one, the point we want to make, one of the crucial parts of that backup system is cash because so many of the stories that came out through the media yesterday related to the fact that a lot of businesses lost a lot of business because they no longer take cash. That's right. And it was only the companies that still take cash and had something in the till 
that could actually um, con continue to conduct business. And if you think about um, other recent outages, this obviously was much more serious, but we had uh, a couple of years ago the OSCO payment system outage, more recently the Commonwealth Bank outages. You've had a lot of outages due to natural disasters. Obviously, the population knows full well that we need cash as a backup. This Optus disaster is actually brilliant in one sense because it is going to put the fine point to the politicians that you need to enshrine and protect cash permanently. And there is nothing that they can argue about this. The dislocation to people have gone onto the, you know, the square payment system or fully digital. They got screwed. No, exactly. And that, that's just a problem. Where there's always a backup with cash, you can always uh, continue without having to, the electronics. Is, as we know, I mean, it's pretty. It's common sense. Cash is not going to disappear from the system, mm. and this just proved it again. Mm, at least exactly. It just proved it again, because otherwise, you, I mean, they were able to bring the system up. I think within about nine to ten hours. Yeah. But what happens if something? goes down for two days. Mm, mm -hmm. How are people going to live? How are they going to transact? You can't. Mm. And the idea of this, as you say, it's a dystopia. It's an unrealistic idea, mm. not because they're trying to increase the services for the population, but cut the cost to the banks and to increase the bank's profits. This mm. is what this is about. Mm, mm -hmm. And the amount of money that must have been lost yesterday would be in the billions. Mm. And that's, you know, and a lot of the... Um, I don't know how many people died because of it. Exactly. That'll come out, I suspect. Mm, over time. Uh, over time. Now, we'll put the link below because this really reinvigorates our campaigns to protect cash and there's a lot of ways we've been fighting that. It keeps coming back in, in a lot of different iterations. But one of the things you can do immediately if you haven't is sign the change.org petition that um, wasn't put up by us but by a collaborator um, on protecting and, and enshrining the um, usage of cash and the access to cash, those things need to be put into legislation. Um, but it also really puts the fine point on our public bank campaign because in order to have the alternative of cash, you need to have the ability to get cash out of a bank, um, to deposit your takings. And as we saw in the case we looked at extensively last week of Kubipedi, that does, you can't take that for granted either when you're five or six hundred kilometres away from the nearest bank. Um, so a public bank which could operate immediately through post offices mm -hmm. uh, is absolutely essential. And as I mentioned earlier, on the 1st of December, we and a number of collaborating organisations and parties, including um, the licensed post offices group, Dale Webster, independent journalist, and uh, per capita, which is affiliated with some of the unions that have been pushing themselves for a post office bank for some time, will get the chance to testify in front of Parliament in a full day of hearings from 9 till 5.30 on the 1st of December. This is going to be a really crucial intervention into this fight. Um, but I also want people to stay tuned to the end to hear a speech that we're going to play in full. It's about 10 minutes from Senator Jared Rennick, who has raised the necessity urgent necessity for an infrastructure bank. Mm. So that's yet another um, flank in that campaign. But before we move on to that topic, I want to draw attention to a really important victory on the Sterling First campaign.
The founder and another two directors of the failed Stirling Thirst housing scheme have faced court for the first time. Charged with criminal offences, the company's collapse left dozens of Perth retirees homeless after investing their life savings in the Home Lease for Life scheme. They were trusted by dozens of Perth retirees in a failed housing scheme. Did you lie to these investors? But no one had been charged with criminal offences until now. Four and a half years. Four and a half years we've waited and we never thought this day would come. But come it has. Sterling First founder Raymond Jones, his son Ryan and director Simon Bell accused of being dishonest in relation to the company's collapse. Did you not only sign up these people to, to the investments knowing that the company would collapse? They've avoided the spotlight since the 2019 failure, also trying to do the same today. There's no one in the taxi. Sterling Group's Lease for Life was promoted as a chance for retirees to secure long-term leases for properties. But when the company went under, some pensioners were evicted from their homes, including grandfather Lawrence Thomas. We don't get our money back. We're, we're basically homeless. While 69-year-old Beryl Taylor is fighting to keep her Ravenswood home in the Supreme Court after losing her life savings. We used everything we had to go into this so that we were safe and secure and we didn't have to worry about anything. The accused trio are facing a maximum penalty of 10 years jail for the alleged misconduct. Their former clients say prison will be justice, but they still want their money back. Mr Bell, do you feel sorry for the investors? A challenge these pensioners aren't giving up on. Michael Stamp, Nine News. Um, and we had fought for an uh, inquiry into the affair of uh, Sterling First, which was uh, essentially a scam. It started out as uh, 100 or so um, ageing people that uh, wanted to engage in a rent-for-life scheme. So they would basically pay uh, their rent up front for the remaining years of their life and afterwards um, the settlement would come through to the family for that home that would they wouldn't any longer require. But it turned out the people running this scheme were serial Ponzi scheme scammers and had run uh, previous Ponzi schemes in the past. So they were getting money in from people these average Aussies that just wanted to retire in comfort. And, they, and these average Aussies, yeah, they, they, they weren't neglecting, negligent in what they were doing. No. So one particular uh, person that we've been in contact with rung up, rung up ASIC and said, is there anything I have to be worried about? And they said, no, there isn't. You had the Department of uh, uh, Mines, Industry, Regulation and Safety... In WA. ...in working with these crooks who have mm. now been charged... To help them set up their scheme. To set up their scheme yeah. and to make it work. Now, both ASIC and the, this, the State Government Department in Western Australia are complicit in this scheme that has failed and seen people lose their savings. Mm -hmm. Now, when you've got... Why can't you, in this country, call up a regulator and trust what they say? Mm. That means that there's actually no regulation. They're not doing their job. Um, and that still has to be accounted for. There's an ongoing ASIC inquiry now that Senator Bragg is leading, which is, has contributed to this victory. Um, and the victory is that on Friday the 3rd of November, 
the three Sterling First directors, Ray Jones, Ryan Jones and Simon Bell, appeared in a Perth court and were charged with 10 to 11 counts of, quote, aiding and abetting Sterling corporate services to engage in dishonest conduct in relation to a financial product or service for which they face a maximum penalty of 10 years imprisonment and or a $945,000 fine. So this is a really critical victory and uh, obviously the um, members of the Sterling First lobby group that have been fighting to get justice have been uh, extremely happy with this. Um, but we do need to pursue ASIC. We do need to pursue the WA government department that allowed this to happen. Otherwise, it will happen again. And we also need to immediately compensate the victims. Now, we're only talking $18 million. Yeah. $18.5 million. We're not talking $365 billion no. for, for a set of uh, you know subs. We're only yeah, talking $8.5 million. Exactly. Between and two governments, state and federal. And this is urgent because some of the uh, people that were embroiled in this scam have already died since since it happened four years ago. So um, this we need justice on this now. So we'll continue to update you and you know push for this fight to come to um, a, an adequate conclusion. Um, so that's said on that, we'll move on to our next topic, time to take our financial system back. And I want to start off here with uh, a discussion of the interest rate rise, which we saw, of course, on Tuesday this week. Um, now, we can put up a graphic here from Martin North. Uh, he's in the UK, but he's still tracking all these things, which is very important for Australians to know. And we see here that mortgage stress is now up to 50.2% of people with a mortgage. So over the halfway mark and rental stress is soaring. It's nearly 73% of renters. And the thing is, um, this is not necessary. It's literally just the gouging of the poorest people. And Michelle Bullock admitted this kind of thing hits the poorest the hardest. Uh, in Senate estimates discussions that just took place um, on the 26th of October. Um, and there's other tools that we could use, but we have allowed ourselves to have one hand tied behind our backs in dealing with all this because we deregulated the financial system. Um, but I want to first draw attention to the advice that came from the International Monetary Fund because on the 31st of October, the IMF issued their concluding statement from their latest staff visit when they come to check up on us um, and see how we're doing financially. And everything that um, is happening in, on the Australian financial front right now is following the cues from that report. So first of all, well, this is just a summary of everything the IMF advised a continuation of interest rate rises, reduction of government deficits, increased economic efficiency, which is just code for austerity, cutbacks, um, reining in of government infrastructure spending, um, and these are things that they explicitly stated, plus even suggesting things like a higher GST to increase government revenue. Uh, now, on the spending cuts, this is what the IMF said. Over the medium term, the governments need to reduce structural deficits and promote economic efficiency. All levels of government need to improve expenditure outcomes and contain structural spending growth in health, aged care and the NDIS. There's nothing in their release that's surprising to say the government should act to curb the excessive profits of the private banking system 
and their shutdown of services to the Australian population. What would that be? I mean, <laughs> this is the problem. Mm. You're dealing with a system, and actually I found that, you know, in the 1940s and early 50s, that the, early, the Labor Party of Curtin and Chifley, they were very, very uh, resistant about going into these supranational government overriding bodies mm. because they knew exactly these sorts of policies were of were, were intended to be brought in. Mm. They were resisting this big time, of course. Unfortunately, that they unfortunately ended up and we ended up joining the IMF. But what you've got here is the system that is that has actually destroyed nations, mm -hmm. and because of that, because of the global dollarisation process, where the US dollar became the only currency in the post World War II period. That's been abused by the American and the British, right, to the point that that system has literally impoverished many nations of South America, many nations of Africa. And so these nations are now looking to an alternative system which is built around the BRICS countries and particularly in China. China has a different idea of infrastructure. Mm. It says we, we will help countries build infrastructure we aren't going to impose our form of governance on these countries, i.e. the American Western system is that you, we are promoting democracy through the IMF. We are, we're democratising you. They don't say that. They don't mind. The Chinese and the BRICS countries are saying, no, sovereignty comes first. Mm. And, and the Chinese are uh, you know, using the Belt and Road Initiative to build infrastructure that those countries need in order to develop economic sovereignty. And whilst this is going on, you've got a whole new currency uh, block, mm -hmm. currency system being built up, which is going away from the dollar, because what the world has seen is that if they invest everything in the dollar, everything in the US dollar, mm -hmm. then the US dollar can get pulled, yeah. like in Argentina, they're vulnerable. or they're vulnerable, like in Russia and so forth. So here we are, the good, dumb Australians, you know, dimwits, Mm. We're saying, oh, we've got to listen to these IMF. And, of course, Chalmers saying, yes, sir, no, sir. Yeah, Let me bend right. over for you, sir. We're going to implement these things. This is the Labor Party we're talking about mm. here. Mm -hmm. We don't have a national bank like a Commonwealth bank where we can tell these guys, you know what, no, we're going to look after our own internal credit. We're going to have an in a national banking system mm -hmm. that can direct credit into infrastructure. And there's something like 400 programs 400 infrastructure projects which Australia desperately needs, they're going to try and shut down now mm. because they're protecting their private bankers' mates. Yep. And the RBA, Michelle Bullock, is nothing more than the extension of the other guy that was in there, whatever his name was. He's such an irrelevance to history apart from the fact that he screwed things mm -hmm. up. But she is simply following the private bankers' yep. control of the economy. I mean, here we are. We're raking it in at the moment from resources sales with high prices and so forth. And the IMF saying, you've got to spend less on health, aged care and disability services. When look at the state of our aged care. Look at the state of our health care system. Now, I want to contrast what the IMF mission head, Abdul Wayne, said with Michelle Bullock because she, in the Senate estimates on 26 October ahead of his report being filed, but of course they were in discussions, the IMF, while they were here the whole time on this mission, um, they said exactly the same thing. So um, the IMF guy said, 
He praised the federal government for saving most of the extra tax revenue it had collected over the past 12 months. So in other words, they've raked it in, but they haven't spent it. They've just left it there, right? That, that's a good thing. Oh, and apart then, from AUKUS. AUKUS well, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> wait till we actually get there yet. But Michelle Bullock said um, in the Senate estimates, uh, she praised the federal government's decision to, quote, bank the revenues it has been raking in. She said, we've got a situation where there's been a large increase in revenues. The fact that those revenues have been banked and not spent, I think, is helpful. Right. Okay. That's really helpful to those people that can't, that are ramping in an ambulance for 10 hours and can't get a hospital bed because we haven't spent adequate money on that. Mm. That's really helpful to the average Australian facing the cost of living crisis. Um, The only thing it's helpful to is the bottom line of the balance sheet, right, that um, puts us in the realm of financial stability, according to the Bank for International Settlements and other adjudicators of such things. It means nothing for the wealth of each average Australian. Infrastructure is the other thing. It's exactly the same issue. The IMF demanded that the Commonwealth Government and state and territory governments should implement public investment projects at a more measured and coordinated pace, given supply constraints to alleviate inflationary pressures and support the RBA's disinflation efforts. Otherwise, interest rates would have to be even higher, putting the burden of adjustment disproportionately on mortgage holders. So in other words, you've got to go without crucial infrastructure. Again, things like hospitals, things like roads. We're going to have bridges caving in like you see in the US soon if we continue this approach. But it doesn't matter if people's lives are threatened because it'll be worse if we don't have these rate rises now. We'll have to have even higher rate rises. Um, So the, the head of the IMF mission argued, according to the Sydney Morning Herald, that spending on infrastructure had to be brought under control. Now, Which is completely opposite to what the BRICS countries are doing exactly. and what China's doing, right? Because the infrastructure that they build grows the economy, and, right? You know, it grows the, the population in terms of their pay packets, what they can spend. It grows everything. Yeah, and I come back to the, the role of infrastructure is like creating the arteries within the body mm, for efficient mm-hmm. blood flow. Now, here in Victoria, you know, Dan Andrews' government has been, and now the Jacinta... Allen government has been embarking on the removal of railway crossings. Mm. It's one of the most successful projects or you know, ideas that any government's had for a long time. And you only have to realise that when you go down the road here, 400 metres, and you no longer have to sit in queues yeah. of traffic because traffic flows. right? And in Britain, they don't have level crossings inside the city in London. It's all been done away with years and years ago, but we still have to put up with the disruption to the economy, Mm. which is not measured in terms of anything realistic as far as the government's concerned or these banks are concerned because it's a user-pay system. Mm. Who cares if you're on the phone to a call centre for a long period of time... If you can get on the phone. If you can get on the phone. (laughs) When you're, you know, it's a consumer paying, Mm. right? And who's concerned about sitting in Mm. traffic with your car idling right, for half an hour because you don't have the infrastructure. Mm. And this is a role that infrastructure plays in an economy. Yeah, So the degree that you speed up the efficiency of the economy, you get gains that you can then, you, you save a lot of time, mm. effort and money and resources and energy and carbon and all that sort of stuff. Mm. 
if you want to look at it in that way, and not that we do. Even people's sanity. Yeah, that's right. Not and having to sit in a car for two hours to get to work or something. Anyway, um, we, we could, this, is, this is one of the things that we've been talking about yeah, for many, many now, years, the role of infrastructure. Now, the government began a review, a 90-day review. It's now plus 190 days but because it started this in March, in May, I should say, this 90-day review. Um, they've just said that they're going to uh, announce results at the time of the December budget update. But this review was designed to um, put off infrastructure projects, so either cancel them or delay them. Of course, you know, if you look at Australia's infrastructure, oh, my God, you know, you can't... There's nothing. We are just bare and barren of any decent infrastructure. Mr Albanese should know that after having just been to China in comparison. But they're talking about delaying at least another 400 projects that haven't even been started yet. Um, things like the Melbourne Airport Rail Link, New South Wales Coast Bypass, etc. And Jim Chalmers confirmed on Insiders on Sunday, he said we're going to need to make some difficult decisions about the infrastructure pipeline, which factors in $33 billion of blowouts from projects announced by our predecessors. Um, so again, they're towing the line that the IMF has put out there of fiscal austerity. Now, on to interest rates. Um, The IMF said this, although inflation is gradually declining, it remains significantly above the RBA's target and output remains above potential. Staff therefore recommend further monetary policy tightening to ensure that inflation uh, comes back to the target range by 2025 and minimise the risk of de-anchoring inflation expectations. So, yes, uh, the RBA went ahead with that instruction and followed that on Tuesday and most likely we'll do it again. But in Senate estimates, um, it was really good to see that we have another senator who's taking on the RBA in the same spirit as um, Green Senator Nick McKim and Jared Rennick and Malcolm Roberts, um, Matt Canavan at times, and that's Green Senator Barbara Pocock and she was quite feisty. Uh, she raised the fact that the Gurner Group, which is run by this property developer, Tim Gurner, had said that the rate of unemployment had to increase by 40 to 50% to discipline workers and rebalance the labour market. She said it was met with outrage appropriately, but essentially isn't his economic project comparable to the RBA's tolerance of increased unemployment to discipline inflation? Um, because, of course, Bullock had said back in June that the unemployment rate will have to rise, that's a quote, the unemployment rate will have to rise in order to bring down inflation. Now, Bullock denied she'd ever said that employment has to increase in order to discipline inflation. But uh, as Pocock said, hang on a minute though, she said the consequence of RBA monetary policy decisions will be an increase in the official rate of unemployment. And Bullock said it will. In our forecast, that's what we forecast. It's a mechanical thing. You know, it will result from it. And Pocock said it's a mechanical effect with very human consequences, of course. And I'll add that uh, economist Nikki Hutley, talking to the Sydney Morning Herald on the 3rd of November, said the danger as a macroeconomist is thinking only in terms of 25 basis points as just a number. She said it means tens of thousands of people out of work. That's good, an economist telling the truth for once. Um, But Bullock, of course, went on to defend what the RBA is doing by saying, look, we only have one tool, and I'll come back to a point that you made earlier, which is that inflation hurts the poorest the most. So in other words, we have to keep fighting inflation by keep putting up interest rates to save you. 
<laughs> just absolute insanity. And she again stated later on, we do know that there are portions of the Australian public that are hurting. We do understand that. We only have one tool, though. Um, and she later affirmed, or a couple of times affirmed, that that tool is a very blunt tool, which had been put by both Pocock and Malcolm Roberts, that they have this one blunt tool. But it was really interesting because the discussion went on um, to raise what's happening in China because there was some um, question raised about the impact of the, if the deflation of the property bubble and property market in China, which is not as big of a problem as what most media sources make out because China has a regulated financial system and can bring those regulations to bear to manage the situation. And both Bullock and Assistant Governor Christopher Kent actually admitted that in quite some detail uh, in the Senate discussion. Um, Christopher Kent actually said they have a lot of tools and a lot of capacity to respond if needed. So in contrast to the, oh, we only have one tool... They're, they're saying, oh, well, the Chinese have lots of tools. And he went on to inadvertently admit, and so did Bullock, that those tools in China are oriented to the good of the population, to make sure that the population are put first. Bullock said the Chinese government has been acting to reduce leverage in the property sector. Oh, there's a thought. And is prioritising the people who bought the properties rather than bailing out over-leveraged companies. And um, she went on to say that in order to correct the situation, the central government of China is looking to the local governments to try and spend more on infrastructure. Mm. Wow, there's a contrast. Um, and, you know, taking into account these two, the track records of what is happening in China and what <laughs> the IMF role models like Argentina, as you referenced, or yeah. numerous other countries, what they're facing, I think the Australian government should, you know, very clearly follow the Chinese model and not uh, the the IMF one. And the, look, the, the Reserve Bank has the capacity yes. to do this. They are a central bank. They have the capacity to issue credit if they choose to into the economy, but they never talk about that. No. It's only one thing, the interest rates. Right, so they could in, they did issue credit during the GFC in order to prop up the economy. Why can't they do that mm. for infrastructure? Mm. Well, they can, according they to Gen can. Gerard Rennick. Yes, and he's on their case big time because, look, the RBA could easily be, could quickly be changed into a national bank, mm -hmm. issue credit to the large projects that we need to be built at very low interest rates, and we get out of this cycle of always being at the control or the behest of the private banks and their yep. higher overseas market private banks and, and overseas mostly. borrowings and markets and stuff. Yeah. Now, I want to come back to that point, but let's listen to Jared Rennick um, and his discussion. He starts off talking about, you know, the bureaucracy that's, um, you know, stymieing a lot of the process of moving forward. He comes on to infrastructure um, and suggestions like a civil army corps for construction of infrastructure uh, tax systems, a lot of these things have to be reformed. But then, of course, he gets to the heart of it a few minutes in, talking about uh, how we need to issue new credit. And there's a number of ways to do, do that. He suggests an infrastructure bank. So listen to this. It's fascinating. Thank you, uh, Deputy Chair. Australia faces a leadership crisis. 
We have a crisis uh, amongst our leadership with their intellect and with their integrity. Uh, and most notably, in regards to their integrity, their lack of in intellect uh, as to what we are doing, going to do, moving forward to solve the cost of living crisis. And just yesterday, we saw the RBA yet again raise interest rates uh, for the umpteenth time in the last few years, and somehow that's expected to solve the economy. Well, that is not uh, going to happen, Acting uh, uh, Deputy Chair. We need to have a serious uh, review of the way this country is run. And while I won't pretend to be able to stop the transmission of airborne viruses or change the climate, I can use my financial controlling skills to review the way that government operates in this country. And one of the things we have to do in this country is actually have a serious federation convention to look at the excess bureaucracies in this country. Time after time, I go into estimates and I get stonewalled by bureaucrats with the smug grins on their faces, taking uh, questions on notice, refusing to answer questions, complaining about answering questions. And that is an utter disgrace to the hard-working Australians whose taxpayers pays these bureaucrats. And we need to look at reforming our federation that is going to streamline uh, the, the roles and responsibilities of both state and federal governments to look at the vertical fiscal imbalance and the duplication of services given to the Australian people, because the Australians' taxpayers' dollars matter. And let me tell you, the brown bags of yesterday, the brown paper bags of yesterday are today's green tape, red tape, black tape, blue tape. You name it, there's a bureaucrat out there somewhere rorting the system with unnecessary rules and procedures that are destroying uh, the entrepreneurial ship and the aspiration that our Australian people so badly need and deserve. So uh, this federation convention that we have should be broken into constitutional changes and non-constitutional changes. Clearly, the non-constitutional changes would be much easier to change. Uh, and, and I'll give you one example of where we could look at is the way federal funding uh, for road, funding for federal highways is funded. Currently, the federal government funds 80% of the federal highways, uh, and the state government funds 20% of the highways. And then the state government goes on and pays generally a foreign uh, contractor to build those roads. You have to seriously ask. Uh, why we have foreign contractors building these roads and why we couldn't get the federal government to fund these roads 100 per cent and then have a civil engineering corps in the army. That wouldn't require a change in the constitution. All it would require is a bit of common sense and willpower between state and federal governments. Now, the next thing we need to look at is our taxation system. Our taxation system is inherently flawed to give tax concessions to the wealthy and to foreign interests. We need to look at closing the loopholes with universities under Section 51 of the 97 Act. We need to look at making sure everyone pays their tax. We have 855 of the 97 Income Tax that says that if you're a foreigner and you make a capital gain on non-real assets, and that includes the sale of water rights, you don't pay capital gains tax. We have to look at Aboriginal land trusts and see why they don't have to pay tax on native title uh, royalties and mining royalties. We have to look at the 128F uh, of the 1936 Tax Act. It's called the Public Offer Test, but effectively allows foreign banks to earn interest here in Australia and pay no tax on it. And most of all, we have to look at our withholding tax system in this country that has a higher tax rate for onshore earnings than it does for offshore earnings. And I'll just give you one example of how this works. We've got here the, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission report from Pfizer on June 30, 2022. In June 30, 2022, Pfizer had a revenue of $100 billion for the year to, for that 12 months. 
they made $34 billion profit before tax. They had an operating uh, ratio or profit ratio of 34%. Now, if you go and have a look at the Australian set of the financial Pfizer accounts, they made a profit of $1.3 billion, uh, sorry, revenue of $1.3 billion, but only made $94 million in profit, i.e. their operating profit ratio was only 7%. Now, you have to ask yourself, why did Pfizer only have an operating profit ratio of 7% here in Australia, yet their worldwide operating profit was th uh, ratio was 34%? I will tell you why, because the rate of tax in Australia at 30 cents is more than twice the rate of tax on interest royalties and rent paid offshore. So what Pfizer has done, and we can see this, the trick the way you read these accounts is you go in to related party payments. And if we go to the back of the accounts, you will see that there is an uh, outstanding figure to Pfizer Island, uh, Pfizer Service Company Island, of $1.1 billion. Now, why would they actually pay Island $1.1 billion for services? Because Island only has a company tax rate of $0.10. Cents. So it's very easy. We have to restructure the way we tax earnings in this country, because our current tax system encourages earnings uh, derived here in Australia to go offshore, and then we turn around and we give a tax break to banks to lend money onshore. So if anyone understands what a balance sheet looks like, that means we encourage foreign debt and we push domestic equity offshore. Now, let me tell you something. Debt is slavery and equity is freedom. If we want to make sure our children grow up in the prosperous country that we grew up in, that our forefathers built for us, we have to reform our tax system. And the last thing we need to look at most of all, and it's the least understood of all these measures, is our monetary policy. Basically, there are three levers to control monetary policy, and that's qualitative easing, or qualitative, quantitative, and then macroprudential. I'll touch on macroprudential first. Uh, in 1985, Paul Keating lifted the capital controls in this country. That meant, and according to the Parliamentary Budget Office, in 1995, uh, the um, Australian government had $8 billion in debt, uh, and, by, uh, uh, and then by 2008, they had $36 billion in, eight in debt. But here's the thing. With banks, the banks had $6 billion in debt in 1985. By 2008, they had $800 billion in foreign debt. In foreign debt. Now, is that the right thing to do? No, it isn't, because our actual uh, one and only Banking Royal Commission said in 1937—so note, I'm referring to the only Banking Royal Commission. There was another one in 2016 that dealt with corruption in the banking, financial and superannuation industry. But the actual real Banking Commission—and this is what set Australia up for prosperity throughout the 60s and 70s—said, the most desirable banking system in the present circumstances of Australia is one in which includes privately owned trading banks. The system contemplated is one in which a strong central bank regulates the volume of credit. The volume of credit and the distribution of credit is left to privately owned trading banks. What does the volume of credit mean, Deputy Speaker, Deputy Chair? It means that on a balance sheet, okay, you've got debt and you've got equity. What we did in 1985, or what Paul Keating did in 1985, he moved all the macroprudential controls, lifted all the capital controls, and just let the banks rip. They went out and borrowed $800 billion instead of enforcing that 
corporations and banks use domestic savings. Use domestic savings. Now, if we want to actually increase supply instead of destroying demand, which is what the RBA is doing, we need to issue credit. Now, there's two types where we need to issue new capital. There's two ways to issue capital. You can either issue bonds or you could issue shares. Now, for some strange reason, governments only ever issue bonds. Yet governments, sovereign governments at least, have title over all the land. So the question is, why don't they issue new shares against sovereign infrastructure? Okay? And that sovereign infrastructure, of course, is power stations, dams, road, rail, ports, airports and te telecommunications. Okay? Corporations issue new shares all the time. A mining company might want to open up a new mine. It will issue a new share. So how do we go about uh, implementing this idea? We issue one share in a bank called Infrastructure Bank. And that company and that share will be owned by our children called Untapped Wealth. And then when that infrastructure bank can lend to federal governments or state governments. So that, say for example, the state government wants to build a dam for a billion dollars. If the infrastructure bank that's owned by the Australian people lends, makes a loan to the state government for a hundred years at one percent, that means that the first billion dollars in wealth that the state government makes, it gets to actually repay to the federal government. The key point here is that that first billion dollars in wealth stays within Australia. Because right now, we go and tap the world's biggest market, of course, which is the US Treasury bond market. The US Treasury bond market is money that is printed by the Federal Reserve, privately owned banks in the States. It's not actually the US dollars it's printing, it's the actual privately owned banks' dollars it's printing. And every time we create new infrastructure assets here, when we repay that debt, we let all that wealth go offshore. So, yeah, you know, this is what we need more of. That is going to be coming to the Parliament on the 1st of December in a major way when we lay out our proposal for a, um, a people's postal bank. But, look, the, um, the issue that the senators like Jared Rennick and others have been raising and has continued in the Senate estimates that we've just talked about is that, as you said, the Reserve Bank overnight could be... with it, It's all there in the legislation could be uh, shifted to begin to do what China's doing, what other countries are doing, uh, and develop and build our way out of this depression. Um, the Reserve Bank of Australia Review recommended taking out all those crucial clauses uh, that allow that to happen, mm. that allow the Reserve Bank to create credit. And I mention this because media have reported in the last few days that the Reserve Bank uh, review recommendations are about to be tabled in the form of legislation in Parliament, they say, um, later this... What's, what's the month? November? Yeah, November. Later this month or sometime this month. Now, that is a bit curious to us because there's been no exposure draft of legislation that has been put forward. But, of course, you can't rule out that there's going to be this is going to be done in the sneakiest of manners because it was interesting um, I was just reviewing what we wrote at the time that this Reserve Bank review came out uh, earlier this year in in April uh, the Reserve Bank in its review actually stated that if we can't get bipartisan support for these legislative changes then we'll have to go through the back door and do it outside of legislation 
through a new statement on the con conduct of monetary policy, which would include a statement, quote, that the government will not use its power to overrule the RBA and the RBA will not use its power to determine the lending policy of banks because the three key things that are still in the Reserve Bank Act that would allow the bank to do what we're suggesting and to fund the development of the country is in Section 11 of the RBA Act, the government has the ultimate say over monetary and banking policy. That means the government, in, the, in terms of if there's a dispute and the RBA doesn't want to listen to the government, the government has the ultimate authority to overrule the RBA. That was, that was, that's been that's put in there actually since the 1930s where there was, you know, the... The government tried to use the Commonwealth Bank at that time, and there was, a, you know, yeah. Sir Robert Gibson said, "No, I bloody well won't. Mm. I'm not going to issue credit for the nation based upon your request, Ted Theodore, mm. because I'm not going to do it." And he, and he just ignored the request of the government, beholden to the, the international banks, banks mm. um, and the Bank for International yes. Settlements, which had just been set up yep. that year. Um, now, the other section of the RBA. RBA Act is Section 36, which allows the RBA to direct lending into specific areas of the economy, which means that the RBA could say, you know, the housing market's overinflated, so don't lend any more in there, but we need to lend more into construction of infrastructure, public housing, yeah, things like that. There's also in Section 50 ability for um, the RBA to control interest rates and differentiate which is something that Nick McKim has raised in different areas. They can differentiate the interest rates. And by extension of those two um, sections, Section 11 and Section 36, um, if you, you know, follow it through, the government can borrow from the RBA to invest in the economy. So there mm -hmm. still is a kind of indirect capacity for the government to be able to invest credit into the economy via the RBA the way it is now. But if they go with the recommendations of the Reserve Bank Review, that will be gone. So uh, you will be hearing from us if there's more any more news. We'll be watching this like a hawk to see what's happening with that RBA process of that review and legislation forthcoming. It comes down to the principle, at least what we talked about before, which is expressed in the BRICS group, uh, grouping of countries, and in China, do you put the population and people first? And if you do, you have a complete different set of policies that promote the physical economy and a need for physical infrastructure to lift people up, which is what China's done. It's developed uh, policies and, and put them into practice over the last 20 years to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Mm. Right, They're the sorts of policies that we need here but we are stricken with this blight called the IMF, the World Bank system, the Western economic mm. system of economic rationalism and all the crap that we've put up with the last 40 years. We've got very few intelligent people in the parliament. And Jerry Renick, you heard his comments. I mean, he's yeah. dead right. Right? People, the, the politicians are, you know, haven't educated themselves to understand that the real battle is this one of who controls the yeah. credit. And there's, there's so many different policies that we could enact in this country to solve the problems, yeah. and very quickly, if there was the political will to do it. Mm. That, well, that's right, and that's the good news, because, you know, that all sounds bad that we're enslaved to these systems, but it's a mental enslavement. If the parliament, if we got a majority of the parliament to decide tomorrow 
uh, we're going to break from the IMF, the Bank for International Settlements, any of our obligations to participate in those organisations we're going to suspend and we're going to create our own uh, banking system, a national bank, and do all those things that we've talked about. There's nothing stopping us from doing it. We might get cut off by some countries. We might get sanctioned, as other countries have been. We can survive. We're a big country. We've got virtually everything we need, and we'll find we'll have a lot of friends Mm. um, that we might not have had before as well. Yeah. Sorry. But we keep coming back to it. This is why we need to have a national bank. Mm. A national bank is the bulwark, is our backbone. It's a, it can back us up when we make decisions relating to our own national sovereignty. Mm. Until we have that, mm. we're at the behest of this international finance, private banking system, dictatorship we call it, a banker's dictatorship. We aren't sovereign. Mm. And, and this is where the, uh, the discussion has to be. Are we going to be sovereign yeah. or are we just going to be you know, whipped around because... We choose yep. this other system. And we're going to get dragged into wars if we don't make well, that break and become sovereign because it's one and the same thing. Yes. Financial sovereignty is the key thing. Economic sovereignty is the key thing to you know, break from these um, dangerous allies that are dragging us into wars. So talk to your politician, talk to your local council, talk to any institutions because as we've seen with the public the fight you know, to stop the closures of banks, the victories we've had, the victories on Sterling First and Cash and other campaigns, it all comes back to mobilising a lot of voices because the parliament can't ignore them at a certain point. And with this Optus issue, they're not going to be able to ignore some of these bigger questions on cash and on banking. And so, it's, you know, 1st of December, we'll be in the parliament testifying for the first time in 35 years on the issues that we've been campaigning for for 35 years. Mm-hmm. There's been a shift, there has been a shift in the parliament and in the governance of this country, the fact that our policies are now being put up mm. in this way. So we have to continue that momentum. It's taken a lot of work, mm. a lot of detailed work, and the alert service backs that up. We're not When we create the policies that we do and talk historically about what we do, all the documentation is there for people to educate themselves with. Mm. And I think that this is the reason that people can look forward to more changes, particularly in the backdrop of what's happening globally with the BRICS countries challenging the, the global hegemony of the, the post-world you know, dollarisation of, of, of you know, the US dollar and so forth. There's a lot of change happening and it's also very dangerous because the US and the West see that their system of government is under threat and they're prepared to go to war, into genocidal wars, like we see in Gaza at the moment, in order to protect their system. And that's, that's a warning for the world. Mm. So I think that um, you know, what we do here in Australia has an incredible amount of power because people will look to us and say, well, if Australia can do it, why can't we? Absolutely. So um, look to the links below for what you can do to be a part of it. Thanks for tuning in. That's the show for this week. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. And we'll see you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.